Well, good morning. If you have a copy of the scriptures, open up to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, I'll be honest with you this morning. Um, I went to, I think it was my first ever daddy-daughter dance last night, and I'm really sore. Um, <laughs> my back hurts, and my leg hurts, and my shoulders hurt. And some of y'all are thinking, Karen, can you dance? Because that's the only reason you'd be sore. You'd be shocked to know. No, I can't. But man, I got after it. So, hey, uh, stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. We're going to read in Romans chapter 1 this morning as we continue this series, The Genius of Jesus, where we see how Paul explains the gospel to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 13 and read down through verse 15. God's word says this, Now I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles, I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, verse 15, so I am eager, your Bible might say, so I am ready to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. God, I pray that you would teach us and grow us. God, that you'd mold us into the image of Jesus today. Lord, as we finish out this introduction of this just timeless letter, God, I pray that we would draw closer to Jesus. Would you give us ears to hear from you, Lord, soft hearts to receive your word and willing and obedient hands and feet to live out the truths that we encounter in this passage today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, these last three weeks, we've been working through the first 15 verses of Romans chapter 1, which we could really sum up, as we've said, as Paul's introduction to this letter. In the first six verses of the book of Romans, if you remember from week number one, we said that was Paul's official introduction to this book, where he's really laying out for these Roman believers who he was, the authority that he possessed in writing to them. But more importantly, what Paul does is he explains the gospel that he preaches. And we remind us of the gospel, that the eternal Son of God came in the flesh as Jesus was buried, rose from the dead, and now offers forgiveness to you and to me if we're willing to repent of our sin and believe in the finished work of Christ. We saw last week as Paul was encouraging this church, he, he told them, and we've kind of embraced this idea that when we embrace the gospel, the gospel changes us. You see, the gospel does no good for you and for me if the gospel never actually makes its way from our head to our hearts. We have to embrace the gospel if we want the gospel to do something in our lives. And we saw Paul commending these believers last week, first, for their position with God. If you remember, we talked about how the gospel moves us from enemies of God to now saints. We're considered the holy ones in the eyes of God. It changes how we live as witnesses. It changes how we interact with fellow believers. We're called together to be the church and to use our gifts to minister to one another. Paul did that in verses 7 through 12 last week, and he commends them, as we said. You've embraced the gospel, and the gospel has changed you. Well, this week, we're going to see another side of that embrace, starting in verse 13. And I love these verses, because as Pastor Joe and I, a few weeks ago, began reading through these, we started to think to ourselves, uh, is there really much here in these three verses? This is just introduction. Is there really much in this passage that we can learn from? But upon further study, what we see Paul doing is he's not just commending these Roman believers now for their embrace of the gospel, but Paul begins to pull back the curtain on his life. Paul, in these three verses, exposes a little bit of his heart to us. 
And he says it's not just how the Roman believers embraced the gospel that changed them. Paul says, I want to show you how because I embraced the gospel. I embraced God's call on my life, how it's affected me personally. And so we're going to close out the introduction of Romans today. Next week, we're going to get to uh, the meat of the passage. You probably heard that verse, Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, but I don't want us to glance over these few verses today because I think there's so much here for us. So three things Paul expresses to these Roman believers. We're going to walk through these quickly, and then we're going to close with communion today. But Paul first expresses his desire. He starts expressing his desire. If you're a note taker, write that down, his desire. He's transitioning the letter for us now from verse 12 to verse 13. As we said a moment ago, not talking about the Romans. Paul's now turning the attention on himself in a positive way. And I think it's interesting because he starts in verse 13 addressing a question that these Roman believers probably had. And the question is this, how come Paul hadn't been here yet? If, if what's going on in our church, we saw this last week, is being talked about in all of the Roman Empire, if what we're doing and what we're experiencing in our faith is ringing out all over the place, as we saw in verse 8, then how come this apostle to the Gentiles named Paul has not been to Rome to visit us? If what's going on here is a big deal, why hadn't he come yet? I think that's a valid question, but look at verse 13. Paul addresses it up front. He says, I don't want you to be unaware. It leads us to believe that the Romans were probably asking this question, and maybe that question had gotten to Paul's ears. He says, brothers and sisters, I often planned to come to you, but I was prevented until now. You see, we see right from the lips of Paul here, he had a genuine desire to go to Rome, a genuine desire to preach the gospel there, a genuine desire to see a fruitful ministry there, just that he had already seen among all these other Gentile areas. He wanted God to do the very same thing in Rome. Again, the hub of the pagan world, the hub of false religion. Paul wanted to go and see God do more than what he had already done <clears throat> through these Roman believers. But I want you to circle two words, verse 13, in your Bible. Circle the words fruitful ministry. Again, I don't want us to glance over this stuff because this is so important to see Paul's desire and his heart for what he wanted to see in Rome. I think his desire here was, was twofold. When we think of fruitful ministry, Paul, first and foremost, wanted to see conversions in Rome. Do you know, apart from Jesus, you and I are gripped by hell. But because of the gospel, that grip is released when Jesus rescues us from the bondage of sin and rescues us to the kingdom of heaven. Paul, I believe, desired to seek fruitful ministry in the capacity that he wanted to go to Rome. He was going to preach the gospel that he had introduced to them in the first six verses. And he knew, as Pastor Joe is going to talk about next week, that there's power in the gospel. And when the gospel is proclaimed, you ready? People get saved. Paul wanted to see fruitful ministry in Rome. But second to that, when Paul talks of fruitful ministry, it's very likely that he wanted to see further maturity among the believers there in that church. How do we know that? Well, if you look at the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, it deals with the explanation of what the gospel is. But chapters 12 through 15 are very practical in their application. Chapters 1 through 11, how I embrace the gospel. Chapters 12 through 15, how the gospel matures and changes me. Paul didn't just want to see conversions in Rome. 
He wanted to go there to encourage, impart a spiritual gift to these believers so that they would become more mature followers of Jesus. Do you know Christian maturity is an important part of your salvation? Sometimes, and I'm not saying this is happening here, we got too many people that never mature in their faith. We're still babes in Christ. And we never let the gospel change us from just our salvation experience to let Jesus mature us as followers of him. Here's a little side note. We're going to get a little theology for you. We, we share this occasionally. Your salvation is a three-part three process. All right, let's make sure we're on the same page here. This is important. First, you're, you're justified before God. That's your conversion experience. We talked about that last week. Enemy of God, you hear the gospel, you embrace the gospel. Through the finished work of Jesus, you're now declared right with God. It's the greatest news in all the universe. You're an enemy, now you're a saint. If that doesn't get you fired up, something's wrong with you. The gospel is awesome. Second to that is your sanctification as a follower of Jesus. This is your maturity as a Christian. It's where the Spirit of God in you is now molding you, forming you. I pray this over you every Sunday and shaping you into the image of who? Jesus. We want the gospel not just to save us, but to change us as well. I'm not who I was yesterday. Thank God. I'm not who I'm going to be tomorrow. Thank God. Because the Spirit of Jesus does something in me every day to make me more like Jesus. Apparently yesterday, Jesus had some sick dance moves, though, I guess. <laughs> we know that. That's Christian maturity. But then it all culminates. This is the best part. Not only are we justified, not only are we sanctified, but then we're glorified. You know the best news in the Bible? Me and uh, my wife and Sophia were talking about this yesterday in the car. That someday when God allows you to draw your very last breath, you're going to draw that breath and instantaneously you will be face to face with Jesus. And the Bible says the time will come where we're going to see Jesus face to face and all sin will have been removed from us completely and we will dwell in his presence in perfect relationship for all eternity. Ooh, not enough to get a Baptist maybe to dance. Goodness gracious. You see, Paul tells these believers, he says, I, I want to see fruitful ministry among you. I want people to know Jesus, but also I want to make sure that you're maturing as a Christian. I want your walk with Jesus to be a little bit further than it was yesterday. But if that's the case, why didn't he go and do it? If the desire was there, how come Paul hadn't made the journey to Rome yet? Second to that, he actually says in this passage, he was prevented to, from going to Rome. Why was that? Let me show you a verse. Flip over in your Bible to Romans chapter 15, if you're able to. Romans chapter 15. We're going to read verses 19 through 20. I encourage you to read the entirety of this chapter to understand what Paul is telling us here in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 15, 19 through 20, Paul writes this later on in this letter. We'll get to this portion like two and a half years from now, and we'll cover it again, all right? He says in verse 19, he says, as a result, I love this, I have fully proclaimed the gospel. I fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricium. Il We're just going to mispronounce that. I apologize. Verse 20, I love this. My aim, my goal, my desire is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. What do we know about Paul? 
Not only was the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul was a, a pioneer. He was called by God to take the gospel to those people who had not believed in Jesus yet. And while he had a deep burden, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight talks about this, for the churches that had already been formed, Paul had an incredibly deep burden for the salvation of men and women who didn't know Jesus yet. And we read, if you continue reading in Romans 15, what we see here is Paul believed that he had done the very thing in that area that God had called him to do. He says, so now I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to drop off an offering. I'm going to head to Spain. And on my way to Spain, I'm going to stop off in Rome and I'm going to finally see you. You see, his calling to take the gospel to those that didn't know Jesus yet was very strong. And that's that tension that we see in the life of Paul. You continue to read his letters. Paul loved the local church. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. Let me read that verse to you. He said, there's a daily pressure on me. Listen to this little phrase. My concern for all the churches. He loved Christians. He wanted to see them mature. But Paul, at the very same time, again, living in this tension here, he loved unbelievers. He loved those that didn't know Jesus yet. Do you see that tension that he lived in? I love those who know Christ because I want to see them mature in their faith. But my goodness, I love those who don't know Jesus yet because they don't know Jesus yet. And he lived there, right in the middle of that that tension. I I got to thinking about that this week. May the same be said of us. You see, there's a a tendency for Christians as we're on this teeter-totter of loving the believers yet loving the unbeliever where we sway one direction. You can sway too much this way and you can sway too much this way, but we're called to live right in the middle. I want to be the type of Christian that, that lives in that tension so well that I minister and love those that God has put around me in this local church But at the very same time, I love those a lot who don't know Jesus yet. May we never get so caught up in this that we forget them, yet may we never get so caught up in them that we forget this. I've heard it described this way. The church is never meant to be a cruise ship. It's a battleship. We come here to be encouraged, to be filled, to be equipped, to ultimately be sent. And once we're sent and we come back bloodied, bruised, and beaten, to do what? To be encouraged, to rest up, to heal, to be sent. That's the tension that we live in as followers of Jesus. Here's point number two. Paul said he has a duty. His duty. Paul loved those who didn't know Jesus. We we said a minute ago, he believed that was his calling. Take the gospel where it had not been proclaimed. See, Paul believed anybody who had not heard about Jesus needed to hear about Jesus. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. He says, I'm obligated. I want you to circle that word. I'm obligated to Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. It's a strong word. In your Bible, I wrote this next to mine, next to the word obligated. It's a word that means I'm indebted to. I'm in debt to someone else. To who? Paul says the Greeks, the barbarians, the wise, the foolish. Notice these distinctions. This is important. Who are the Greeks? These would have been those who were educated, the intellectual, the sophisticated there in Rome. Paul says, I need to bring the gospel to them. Who was the barbarian? It was those who were uneducated, the lower class in that community. Then he says it a completely different way. Paul says, I'm obligated to the wise and I'm obligated to the foolish. What's he doing? He's using these cultural nuances to help us understand this. 
Paul says if we were to lay everybody out on a spectrum, Greek and barbarian, wise and foolish, Paul says everybody from over here to everybody over here, I'm indebted to the gospel. Everybody over here to everybody over here, I need to share Jesus with them. One of the things that drives me nuts in modern day Western ministry is when we create this demographic that our church is called to reach. Stop. You know who we're called to reach? The person from over here to over here. Why? Because we're indebted with the gospel to them. I have been shown the mercy and grace of God and anybody that God allows to cross my path, I am indebted with the gospel to them. What did Paul say in Romans 15 verse 20? My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. Paul didn't care who you were. If you didn't know Jesus, he says, I have a duty to share him with you. You know, one of the greatest journeys every human being will ever take is only an 18-inch journey. You ever heard this before? Of where you hear the gospel, and you don't just hear it, the gospel makes its way down to your heart. We are obligated to at least help people get the gospel here. And then we, we trust the Spirit of God to get the gospel here. We help people start the journey But then the Spirit of God finishes the work. Paul loved unbelievers. We talked about this, I believe, last week or two weeks ago. How do we view those who don't know Jesus? I know I'm guilty of this. He gives us a blueprint of it. Of those, he says, I'm in debt to these people. Yet how often in my life am I just annoyed with unbelievers? I can't believe they would do, say, or act that way. Why? They're lost. If your father is the father of darkness, then guess what you do? Dark things. (laughs) I heard one guy a couple weeks ago, Pastor Joe Veal, said, if you expect a dog not to bark, something's wrong with you. That's what dogs do. It's their nature. I never get mad at our little dog, Bruno. We don't talk about him. (laughs) I haven't got to use that joke yet, so that killed. But Bruno... I used to use this in student ministry all the time because students, man, they'd get saved and they'd start to follow Jesus and they're like, oh, I can't believe my friends would do this. I'd never look at Bruno and get upset because he acts like a dog. I never reprimand him for barking and not meowing. Right? Because his very nature says that there's some things that are just instinctual to who he is. And friends, if we're enemies of God, apart from Christ walking in darkness... There's certain things that unbelievers will just do because they don't know Jesus. And we have to make the choice as Jesus followers. Will we get annoyed, avoid, holler? Or will we see ourselves as those who are indebted to those who don't know Jesus and do what we can with the gospel that has been entrusted to us to share the good news of Jesus with them, get it in their head, and let the Spirit of God do what the Spirit of God does to get it to their heart and to completely change their nature, which ultimately changes their way. We don't need external influences to change people. We need internal heart change. That's where the good stuff comes from. Aaron's going to preach this morning. Paul says in Romans 10, 14, how can they call on him who have not believed? How can they believe without hearing about him? How can they hear without a preacher? I know that's about Israel, but the principle still applies. No one in our culture is going to get to heaven by osmosis or accident. I can remember my father used to tell me in college, he said, I used to stay up late and I wouldn't study. So when I'd go to bed, it's a true story. He'd say, Aaron, I would actually take my textbook of the test I was having the next day. I would open it up and I would sleep next to it, just hoping and praying that the information in the book would make its way from the page into my head so that maybe I could pass the test. Okay, the gospel doesn't work that way. 
Y'all heard that phrase before? I think it's uh, St. Francis. I can't remember his whole title, but he he said this at one point. He said, um, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. I get the sentiment. I don't like it. Words are necessary. No one gets saved because you hand them a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. No one gets saved and follows Jesus because you're a good employee. It doesn't work that way. We have to preach Jesus. We share Jesus. The gospel comes from our lips to people's ears. That's why, as Joe again is going to say next week, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and salvation must be proclaimed. It's not going to happen by osmosis or accident. It's going to become because a Christian shared with another individual. Here's Paul's third point. It's his delight. His delight. Look at verse 15. He says, so I'm I'm eager. Your Bible might say, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is so simple. Paul says, when when I do get there, I'll, I'll preach. When I do get there, I will encourage the believer and I'll preach to save the sinner. Whatever I do, whenever I get there, I will preach. The late Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, I have to wonder, because we see this phrase often in Paul's letter, if his life motto was that simple word, I'm ready. I love that because you can see throughout Paul's letters where he used that same sentiment where he would say, all right, Lord, I'm ready to go. You send me wherever you're going to send me. He'd say things like, all right, Lord, I'm ready to do whatever you want me to do. Just ask me to do it. And he, he just lived from this posture of, Lord, I'm ready. Now, what do you want me to do? Not, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then I'll let you know if I'm ready. Paul says, I'm ready. What do you want me to to do. And here's what I love. Let's close with this as we transition to the Lord's Supper. In God's sovereignty, do you know that Paul did eventually make it to Rome? I love this so much. You know how he got there? On a prison ship. On a prison ship that wrecked on the coast of a place called Malta, part of the Roman Empire. And after a few months after that ship had crashed, Paul eventually made his way to Rome as a prisoner. Listen to this, Acts 28. Now brothers and sisters from there had heard the news about us and had come to meet us as far as the forum and the three taverns. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and he took courage. Luke's writing about Paul's ministry here in Acts. And then right in verse 16, Luke says, and when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who guarded him. You know what Paul did with that soldier? He preached the gospel. You remember in Galatians or Philippians when Paul was chained to a Roman guard and we know he preached the gospel and then at the end of Philippians when he's writing to that church, he says, oh, by the way, those from Caesar's um, council, those from Caesar's army greet you. You know why that was? Because Paul, they'd chain a guard to him. He'd preach the gospel and the guard gets saved. (laughs) And so Paul says, hey, by the way, um, the Roman soldiers, they say hi because they love Jesus now. I love Paul. Charles Spurgeon had this to say about this moment in, in Acts 28. He said, I don't suppose that Paul could guess that he would be sent to Rome at the government's expense. But he was. As a prisoner, the Roman Empire actually had to find, I get goosebumps reading this. The Roman Empire had to find a ship for Paul because he was a prisoner. They had to find an escort to get him to Rome. 
Paul entered Rome as an ambassador of Jesus, but in the chains of the Roman Empire. They paid for everything. You see, when our hearts are set on a thing and we pray for it, listen to this, goodness, God may grant us that blessing, but it may come in a way that we never looked for. God says this to Paul. Yeah, Paul, I'm going to send you to Rome, but you're going to go in chains. Will you still preach? And will you still do what I've called you to do? And what's Paul say? I'm ready. I'm eager. I'm obligated. Let's go. May the same be said of us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this day. God, we thank you for a few moments to reflect on the gospel. Thank you for taking us from enemies to saints, from lost to found, all because of Jesus. I pray now, Lord, as we sing that it's a sweet sound through the corridors of heaven, giving you the praise you deserve. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.